Good morning. The scripture passage is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the land of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word of the Lord. Good morning again, everyone. My name's Eric, pastor here at Trinity. It's good to be back with you. I was away last week. We had a little bit of a spring break this past week. But today, we are stepping back into our sermon series for the season of Lent called Groundwork for the Soul. So we've been looking at Matthew chapters 3 and 4, and these chapters are all about how the groundwork was laid for Jesus' public ministry. And his mission. So these are kind of pre- preparatory uh, chapters that introduce us to Jesus, who he is, and what he came to do. So we've been gaining insight into Jesus, but we've also been looking at this passage, these two chapters, and realizing they're full of application and insight for us, especially during the season of Lent. But they're, they're full of application for these times and these seasons in our life when we need to do groundwork in our own souls. Groundwork, what is it? It's how God prepares us for seasons of growth. Groundwork is how God prepares us and equips us for new places where he might be calling us, new seasons of service and focus in our service to him. So where have we been? We've covered John the Baptist. We looked at him. He came with a lot of urgency, saying now is the time to pay attention to the groundwork in your own soul. And then we looked at Jesus' baptism and explored how a clear sense of identity is so important to have deeply rooted in our own souls. And then a couple weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' temptation and the importance for us of regularly stepping back to recognize and resist the specific temptations that we're facing in our lives. So those are three very important pieces of groundwork. But today, we come to, we just heard it read, a somewhat maybe obscure or overlooked passage in the Gospel of Matthew, here in these two chapters. We know about Jesus' baptism, maybe if we're familiar with the story of Jesus and his temptation. But what does this chapter have to do with his own preparation and the groundwork for his ministry? As I was studying for this sermon, I realized a lot of the commentaries that are written on the Gospel of Matthew just kind of breeze on by this and say, okay, he, he moved and there's a fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah that's quoted, but they just kind of move on. But I'm convinced, convinced, after looking at it this week, that Matthew doesn't want us to just breeze on by this passage, that it's extremely significant for us as we're thinking about the groundwork of our own souls and lives. So this passage is about a move that Jesus made. It's his move from Nazareth, where he grew up, his hometown, And he's moving to Capernaum, 
which is about 40 miles northwest. So Jesus made a move. Why is that a big deal? 40 miles away. It's this move that Jesus is picking his chosen starting place to begin his ministry. So this is where it all begins in Capernaum. And it shows us one extremely important but often overlooked aspect of the groundwork that every single person needs to do in their own soul. We have to move into the dark places in our soul. We have to take a look at the shadows in our lives. For many reasons, we'd rather not go there often. We'd rather ignore, ignore these things, not talk about it or deal with it. But what this text shows us is that Jesus moves into these places, not away from these places. He moves into the darkness in this world and in us. In our family, a part of our normal Saturday morning routine is Saturday morning cartoons. That's what I grew up with, so it's like, Saturday morning cartoons, yes, this is awesome. But we have something different in our family that I didn't have to uh, experience in my own childhood, but we have before Saturday morning cartoons, we have Saturday morning cleanup in order to watch the cartoons, and our kids love that part of it. So our kids have to clean some bathrooms, they have to clean their rooms, and often we'll go up there and say, okay, you have to pass inspection. You can't just come down and say, my room's clean. When are we going to watch cartoons? But we go up there and we inspect. So unless we're careful, if we're walking around and looking at their rooms, we'll say, okay, everything's put away, the floor's clean, the beds are made, you're good to go. But often we'll come back and we'll realize, oh, that's where everything went. It's all under the bed. It's all stuffed in there where no one can see it or in, in the closet. Spiritually, we do something like this too. We tend to stuff the hard stuff in our lives into the dark places or into the shadows where we don't have to look at it, where we think nobody else has to see it or to deal with it. But Jesus moves into these places in our lives. So this passage highlights, I think, one of the most important truths of Christianity. For those who think they are far from Jesus, for those who think they are most removed from Christianity and its effect and its power on our lives, Jesus moves towards you. And for the places in our lives we think are the furthest from Jesus, the places in our lives we think are most hidden away, Jesus moves into those places. So we're going to look at three points. If you're following along in your bulletin, we'll look at three points as we move through the lessons of this passage. First lesson is, no one is beyond his reach. Second, nothing is beyond his reach. And thirdly, everything will come under his reign. So first, no one is beyond his reach. So where is this place that Jesus moved? It's called Capernaum, by the Sea of Galilee, way up in the northern part of the land of Israel. And if you look at verses 13 through 15, we see that Matthew is going out of his way to describe where Jesus went in all these different ways. In 13, he says he withdrew into Galilee, and then he lived in Capernaum by the sea, the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. He really wants us to know that this place is significant. 
So this was, like I said, way up in the north, and the center of Jewish political life and religious life was way down in the south, in Judah and Jerusalem. So this was pretty far removed from that. We see that Matthew, in emphasizing this place and describing it all these different ways, he is trying to make a connection very clear. That Jesus' move is connected to the history and the story of Israel and to this prophecy that was made in the book of Isaiah, chapters 8 and 9. So what's the story of this place? We need to know the story. Naphtali and Zebulun. They were two of the 12 tribes of Israel that settled in this land in Palestine and Israel. And these were the two tribes, the two areas of the land that were first driven into exile. These were the first two pieces of land that were lost in Israel and came under the control of a foreign power, the Assyrians. And this was way back in 733 B.C. that this happened. So in Jesus' day, this part of the land of Israel was barely remembered. It was very mixed. Ethnically, it was mixed. That's why it's called Galilee of the Gentiles. There were non-Jewish people living there. It was very mixed religiously as well. But Isaiah, way back in 733, made this prophecy. He said, that's not going to be the end for them. When Assyria takes over, when they're carried away out of this place, that won't be the end. So geographically, religiously, historically, and spiritually speaking, where Jesus chose to begin, this was the darkest place in all of the land of Israel. So they were spiritually confused. They didn't really know what they believed. It was a mixture. They were spiritually considered impure by the people in Jerusalem. They were theologically off. But Jesus, he seems to be moving further and further away from the type of people that it would be the right choice to start his movement and his mission with. Jesus chose to begin there because he moves into the darkness, not away from it. Why did he do that? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons, but one to highlight is it shows us that no one is forgotten, and it shows us that no one is beyond his reach. These were the first people to be taken and carried off into exile, 733 B.C. They will be given the first chance to return and to repent. Everyone had given up on them. Everyone had forgotten about these people and written them off, but God had not. And what may have been even more surprising or difficult to accept for Matthew's original readers, who were mostly of a Jewish background and a Jewish audience, this was not only the farthest corner of Israel, but these were Gentiles. So one commentator says, Jesus' move to Galilee of the Gentiles demonstrates God's amazing initiative towards those who had never been considered. No one is out of his reach. How might this apply to us? Well, some of you are here, and as you reflect on where you stand before God and with the message of Christianity, what you really think is that I'm not really the type of person who's ever really going to change. I'm not really the type of person who's ever going to become a real Christian, a thriving Christian, whatever that picture might be for you. So you've written yourself off from having a thriving relationship with God and a clear sense of calling in your life from Him. Now, I think this could be 
any number of us from various places in our journey of faith. You may have been in or around church a long time, but because you've been around church so long, you've grown a little bit cynical and jaded about your own spiritual life and kind of apathetic. You grind through church. You kind of just go through the motions. But deep down, what you believe that it's just too late for me. There's just too many layers of stuff that I have in my life. I've kind of been there. I've tried Jesus, and I'm just disengaged. There may be another group of you here who are exploring Christianity, and we're so glad that you feel welcome to come to our church and investigate Jesus and ask good questions. And you're asking, is Christianity for me? Your impression of Christianity is that's something that's interesting, but isn't it for people who kind of already have their life put together? We're kind of already living a good life, which is not true. But you think Christianity works for people who don't have real issues and stuff to deal with, but people who have messed up, people who have experienced real and deep brokenness, is it really for them? Is it really for me? This passage is telling us that no one is beyond his reach. People who think they are the farthest from Jesus. These are the kind of people that Jesus moves into to become near to. There may be people in our lives that we're concerned about. We're concerned about where they stand spiritually. This passage is an encouragement to us that no one is out of his reach. It's interesting that three different gospel writers report this same move. Jesus moved from Nazareth. To Galilee. But Matthew is the only one who stops to explain the significance of this move and quote from Isaiah. Mark and Luke just kind of breeze on by. And remember, Matthew is writing mostly to a Jewish audience, mostly to people who have a religious background, a very moral upbringing. And he says, I don't want you to miss this. Don't miss the fact that Jesus moved and started with the people that you have given up on that you have written off. And what this shows us is if we think there are some people who are beyond the reach of Jesus, beyond the reach of the gospel, then we have not understood Jesus or the message of the gospel, the heart of Christianity. We are all equally beyond his reach, and until we see this, we don't get the gospel. Both Those who are considered irreligious and those who are considered religious need to hear this message. The irreligious need to hear there is such a thing as darkness and shadows, and they need to be called out of that. But the religious and the moral need to hear that the most dangerous darkness is a superiority, a self-righteousness. In Matthew, Jesus' most common rebuke to the religious leaders, it was, you are blind. Matthew 23 and other places. You are blind. You are living in the dark and you don't even know it. It's when we realize Jesus moved toward me. I thought I was beyond his reach. That's the sign that we've gotten the gospel. So no one is beyond his reach. But not only does Jesus' move to Galilee and Capernaum show us that no one is Beyond his reach, it also similarly shows us that nothing is beyond his reach. So Matthew's quotation of Isaiah, it doesn't 
gloss over or sugarcoat the situation in this region. He's going back and he's bringing up the past. He's trudging up the junk in the story of Israel. These people have by and large been through 733 years of what he says are darkness and shadows. So for perspective, the United States, what, we're going to be 241 years old this year. This is a long time. This is deep darkness. What is this darkness? I think this darkness speaks both to the ways that we have sinned and been sinned against, the ways that we have been broken by our own choices and sin and the brokenness we have experienced by living in a fallen and broken world. In Jesus' move to Galilee, he's saying to Israel, I'm going back to the very source, to the very beginning of your brokenness and your darkness to start my healing and my restoring work. And the point is that nothing, no matter how hard, no matter how dark, no matter how broken, is beyond the reach of Jesus. This Lent, I've been praying a prayer. It's in my daily prayer book almost every day. And it, the prayer is this. In the darkness of our sin, your light breaks forth like the dawn, and your healing for deliverance. With light and darkness, one of the main functions of light when it meets darkness is to reveal. And what we see here is that the light first has to reveal in order for the light to begin to heal these places in our lives. When the women were on the women's retreat just recently, a few weeks back. I had the kids and the boys at home, and I was doing Saturday morning cleanup, and I was just focused. I was like, Amelia's going to see a clean house when she gets back from this retreat. So I was doing extra stuff, spring cleaning, cleaning our bathroom, and I was like, there's some lights here. They need to be changed. So I was like, let's get some fresh lights and put all the lights in the bathroom. And I was telling one of my boys, all right, flip it on, and let's see how it looks. And it's all bright. And I look at myself in the mirror, I'm like, Man, I look old. Why, why is my hair so gray and these wrinkles? Let's just take these lights off. Never mind. Let's just, let's just reverse that. When the light of the gospel breaks into our lives, first it reveals in order to heal. We don't know what Jesus told the people of Galilee. If he gave them the backstory, I want you to know why, why I'm here Galilee of the Gentiles, it's because, in fact, you are the darkest place. You are the most in-the-shadows region that I could start with. So here I am, and if they heard that, if he ever told them that, I'm sure they would have said, wait a minute, we're not that bad. Have you been over to this region of Israel? They're actually worse than us. Maybe you should start over there. They're probably making defenses and excuses about that. Jesus says, don't worry about all that. But it is that bad. Jesus came to reveal. Light reveals. And there are many implications for this in the, the dark places of our lives, of our soul, of the dark nights of the soul, when God seems absent. But I, I think it's warranted for me to say that in the geography or the terrain of our souls, we all have a Naphtali, a Zebulun, in our story, in our history. We have places that are like Naphtali and Zebulun, deep places where we've been broken by sin or by the sin of others or just living in a broken and a hard world. 
areas of struggle, areas of darkness. We'd rather keep those things hidden. They're places we're not sure God can heal. And we're afraid for these things to come out into the light. It's too painful. Well, I'm on a cleaning theme. And so yesterday, I did some more cleaning. It was time to finally clean our van. And we have four boys in a minivan. It doesn't stay clean (laughs) very easily. It gets pretty nasty. And it was time to do a cleaning. So I took it to the car wash. And we had been noticing that there was this smell in the car. What is that smell? Horrible. We just figure it's like our boys' feet or something like that. It's just lingering on. We're like, okay, whatever. And so, but I'm cleaning with one of my kids, and we're going deep clean, and we're vacuuming everywhere, and we lift up this one piece of our seat, and we realize, oh, he holds it up. He's like, look. And this is moldy pretzel, nasty moldy, like soft pretzel in a bag. Like, oh, okay, that's what was causing the smell. Let's get rid of that thing. Now, if I was, as, as we were, just focused on scrubbing and cleaning everything we could see, then we would have never discovered or gotten to the root of what was causing that disgusting smell. Okay, so that is a disgusting illustration. But the point is, that's how we often approach our lives. We're focused on everything that's out there that's presentable that we can see. We're scrubbing, we're cleaning, all of that. All the while, we're not going to go under the seat to discover what might be there. And yet we wonder why we still struggle. We doubt the power of the gospel in our lives. One of my ministry mentors, Scotty Smith, he tells a story of how his mom died when he was very young. I think he was 11 years old. And on the day his mom died, his dad and his brother, um, they learned of it. And from that day on, they never spoke of it again. He never spoke of it. It was one of those things where he was like, don't go there. We're not going there. And as certain nagging issues kept affecting him in his marriage and in his ministry, finally, I think he was 50 years old, his friend and colleague in ministry just gently and graciously started to poke a little bit and say, well, what about when your mom died? Maybe you should look at that. And finally, he did, and he shares some of his thoughts in a few of his books, but one of those is called Restoring Broken Things, and I wanted to share a few of the things he says there. He he says, I was able, for most of his life, he's saying, to mask and micromanage my brokenness for a long time, but ignored wounds, mismanaged emotions, and idols of the heart inevitably caught up with me. And he says, Jesus, in the next quote, He doesn't draw attention to the broken places in our lives to humiliate us, but to humble us and to heal us. I resonated with his story because of my own Naphtalis and Zebulans in my own life and my own family story. I grew up in a family that was strained by alcoholism, and it was there. It was a part of my story. As I started to grow in my faith, I realized there are just certain places where I was hitting a wall and felt like, is that something that I should look at? Should I go there? Certain places in our marriage, we were hitting a wall. And finally, 
I said, maybe this is something that I should explore. Maybe this has affected me. Maybe I should let the light of the gospel go there. And I'm still very much in process, but have found that the gospel did go deeper, has gone deeper in my life as I stopped saying to God and to others, we're not going there. If we don't allow the light of the gospel into the dark places, into the shadows of our lives, if we don't allow Jesus to move in there, the reality is we'll compensate, we'll cover up, but it will catch up to us spiritually, relationally, emotionally. It will affect us. And Matthew is wanting us to know nothing is beyond his reach. He points us back to the prophet Isaiah. This is what Isaiah was talking about, what happened. It's happening in Jesus. If you look in your bulletin, I printed the, the larger context of that Isaiah passage, chapter 9. And I want you to look there with me. Because whenever a, a writer in, in the New Testament quotes an Old Testament passage, he doesn't want us just to look at those specific verses. He wants us to call to mind the context and the whole picture of what's happening. And if you look there in verses 9, verses 3 through 5, Matthew wants us to have this picture in our mind of the healing that Jesus brings. That in our places of darkness and brokenness and shadow, verse 3, if you have a pen, underline joy. There will be joy after the pain and hurt. The kind of joy like when all your toil is over and when you enjoy the fruit of all your labor. That kind of joy. In verse 4, if you have a pen, Underline the word broken. The things that make you feel the most broken are broken themselves. Freedom from burdens you never thought you could be rid of. And in verse 5, underline every book or every boot, every garment. The picture there is the end of all our fighting, the end of the battling. Joy, freedom. The end of fighting. Don't you want that for those dark places in the shadows in your soul? I know I do. How does this happen? How does Jesus move into these places in our lives with light and healing? When Jesus moves into this region, he starts with a very simple message there in verse 17. Just one sentence. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We might paraphrase that. Jesus is saying, turn to me now, because everything is going to come under my reign of goodness, truth, and justice, and light. As a pastor, I know if I'm going to bring up this topic of the dark places, of the shadows in our lives, then I better also bring some hope to bear and speak some hope into these things. And I think I do. What Jesus says here is one of the most hopeful things we could ever hear. He comes to our Zebulans and our Naphtalis, and he says, whatever it is, whether it's a way that we've sinned or been sinned against, however we are broken, this thing, this part of our life will not reign over us, will not rule over us, because he's come to reign. The reign of darkness, the reign of the shadows, that reign is coming 
to an end with the coming of the kingdom of heaven, and light always drives out darkness. We experience this rain in our lives as we respond in, in two ways that I want to share. The first is what Jesus says, repent. When Jesus says repent, what he's doing is revealing our sin. But he's revealing our sin, our need, our darkness in a way that doesn't shame us. He reveals without shaming. Jesus' words are the exact same words of John the Baptist. And repent is one of those words that we tend to want to avoid. If somebody comes shouting at us, repent, that's not what we think we want to hear. It sounds harsh. It sounds punitive. But in fact, in the Bible, repent is one of the most compassionate words in all the Bible. It's not God coming down on us, but God calling us to come back to Him, no matter where we are. And so God, Jesus, moving into this area, He reveals these dark places without shaming us. Shame about our darkness and shadows causes us to hide, causes us to turn away, but repentance calls us to turn to God with these things. You know, when we have something hard to share with somebody, maybe a way that they have hurt us, maybe something we need to confront them about, what's the hardest thing for us to do? It's to look that person in the face, in the eyes. Or if you're a parent and you have to discipline your kids, yeah, well, we need to talk to you about something. What's the hardest thing for them to do? It's to look at you in the face, in the eyes. It's because of shame. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, God's first act of creation, He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God does His recreating work, His healing work in a way that doesn't shame us, but turns us directly to the face of His Son and His glory. He says, turn. The face will be a face of compassion and love and grace. Secondly, we need to surrender. We need to repent and surrender. Jesus heals when we lay down our weapons. Jesus' main message was not, here are some ways for you to improve your life. It was not, Follow my teachings and example to deal with the hard things. It's not, here's how to go to heaven when you die. His message, his main message that he repeated over and over again was, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The people of this time had a category for that word kingdom. They knew what this meant. If you said, the kingdom of Rome and Caesar is at hand, you know you had two options. You either resist but you surrender. Jesus says, God's reign has come to drive out the darkness, to bring light and healing. Stop trying to fight the darkness on your own, to deal with the brokenness with your own strategies and your own strength and in your own wisdom. Surrender and trust Him. This morning, we celebrate communion. And as we've talked about, this message, this passage, this text teaches us no one is beyond his reach. Nothing is beyond his reach. And everything will come under his reign.
Jesus began his ministry, his very first act, by moving into the darkness. And Jesus ended his ministry by moving into an even deeper darkness. Communion reminds us of this. Matthew 27, 45 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's bearing our guilt, our shame, and the pain of all our brokenness. Communion is a reminder of, of the cross and also of the resurrection. The resurrection is the proof that the reign of darkness and shadows will indeed and is now coming to an end. Light will drive back all the darkness in the world and in us. So as, as we come this morning, I, I want to encourage you. The song we're going to be singing, Daniel and I found this song, and I think it's, it's the perfect response to what we've just heard. And I want to encourage you to come slowly. Don't rush through it. Come, if you need to, to turn and repent. Let God reveal what he wants to reveal. But I also want you to come rejoicing. Rejoicing knowing that the light does drive back the darkness. So come in a moment. Come in faith, knowing God is present. And he meets us during this time, even in the toughest places in our soul. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that it's true that no one and nothing is beyond your reach. And I pray as that sinks in that you would bring the light to bear in our own hearts and souls. That you would restore joy that we haven't experienced in so long. That you would lift burdens and break the burdens that oppress us. And that you would bring an end, even now, even this morning, to the things that we just keep fighting and struggling with. As we come to your table, we pray you would meet us with grace and mercy. We thank you that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of grace and healing and compassion will drive out all our brokenness. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, it's important that we remember who should come to this table. Jesus, when he instituted this meal, opened it up for all those who would believe in him. So if you trust in Jesus, if you have repented and surrendered to him, the king, you are welcome to come. If you are connected to his church and have been welcomed into his church through baptism, this table is for you. If you're here and you are still exploring Christianity, trying to understand Jesus, 
again, we are so overjoyed that you're here with us to investigate and to ask questions. And I would encourage you to take this time to pray. There are some prayers printed for you as, as examples on page, on page 6 in our bulletin. And I would invite you not to come to this table and to go through something that doesn't express the reality of where you're at in your own trust and faith and journey, but you would use this time to reflect and to process. Whenever we celebrate communion together, we also take this opportunity for us to confess the story in which we stand, the story in which we believe, the faith that we confess that is shared across the globe, across cultures, by reading the Apostles' Creed together. Would you stand with me? And let's read from page 6 in the bulletin, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving us this meal that your body was broken for us, your blood was shed for us. I pray you would take this very ordinary bread and wine, and you would set it apart. You would make it holy to be used for your holy purposes in our lives, to nourish, strengthen, encourage, and heal us. We thank you for how this table reminds us of the open invitation you give to us always to come, to turn, and to be healed by grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And on page six, I want to encourage everyone to turn there. We'll be using a slightly different liturgy this morning. The prayer of thanksgiving, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord, our God. The night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. 